You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. We've been on a journey through uh, mostly First and Second Samuel. Today we're going to be in First Kings chapter 2, but we've been talking about the life of David. And in particular, the subject has been the heart of the king. We're trying to understand how David's heart uh, beat for God, but ultimately, David's story helps us understand the heart of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's the goal. We want you to not be more like David because we've seen plenty of examples from David's life that we do not want to emulate, that we don't want to copy. But we can always find comfort and consolation in the heart of our King Jesus, in the heart of the King who is God. And so today, this last sermon in this series, obviously we'll be talking about Christmas things next week and in the weeks to follow. But this is our last time to look at the life of David together, and I pray that you will understand a little better today the heart of the King. So if you will, please stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock that is God's Word. We're going to pick up here in chapter 2, verse 1. And we see why this is the last sermon in the series, because these are the last words literally, as David, the father, instructs his son, Solomon. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as, as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now let me just pause here for a moment. I'm only going to read 5 and 6, and then I'm going to skip down to 10. But I want you to realize this. So far, everything that David has said to Solomon is beautiful, poetic, powerful. But here, in case you forget that David is a man and he is uh, filled with error and still, even on his deathbed, still a man who has some room to grow as a human being. Notice this. Moreover, you also know that Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did what he did to me and how he dealt with the two commanders, commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amazah, the son of Jether, whom he killed avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. And therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Now, skip down to verse 10 and you see the end of the story. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. There's a mixed bag here, good and bad, all of, uh, of which we can learn from. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, speak to us this morning. Show us, Lord, your heart. We look at David's life and we see an amazing life, a man who was used in a mighty way. But we also see, Lord, the power of sin and the destruction of sin. And so, God, I pray for every believer here today that we will take stock of our own hearts and that we will surrender our, our, our hearts, our sins to you. And Lord, if there is someone in this room today that does not know you, does not have, Lord, the hope of the gospel, the power of the cross, Lord, I pray you'll touch their hearts and save them in a mighty way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You may be seated. Let me begin by saying this. Life will be busy, but it doesn't have to be complicated. And to illustrate what I mean by complicated, let me just share with you some thoughts I have on Ikea. Now, you heard me right, Ikea. How many of you have ever been into an Ikea store? Wow, it's amazing because there's not one here close. We have to go to St. Louis or Kansas City. So when, if you've not been to Ikea, here's the design layout of the store. It, it is literally a maze. You, you, you just have to go through all that, and the things you need to buy are somewhere else, right? So you walk through that whole maze. I mean, it's amazing. You get there, and you're all excited because everybody tells you how great Ikea is. I mean, Scandinavians make the best furniture, and you're all excited about that. And you walk in this place, and, and just in case you thought that, you know, you haven't been talked down to enough in your life, they have arrows on the floor telling you which way to go. And you have to walk through their maze and see all of their furniture, and it is exhausting. Ten miles later, you get to the end of your journey, you think, and then you see a set of stairs. And then you go down into a target on crack, basically, just another whole store underneath, and you're having to go through all these things. And so all that is, is crazy. And then you get yourself to the uh, uh, downstairs part. You get through the target, what I'm calling the target. And then you have to go pick out your own furniture, all in the same nondescript brown boxes. You get there, and you pay, and you leave, and you think you've accomplished something. And then you get home. And you realize that not only have you bought some kind of sleek Scandinavian furniture, now you have to put it together. And if you were to buy a book at, at, at Ikea, this is what it would look like. Bunch of Scrabble tiles, right? If you were going to buy a birthday cake there, it would look something like this. And by the time you've got whatever it is you're supposed to get together together, you look like this. And I'm going to tell you, when I saw this, this is exactly how I feel anytime I try to put something together at all. I mean, the, the poor lady, I mean, you could tell she needs therapy, and the chair is clearly not together like it's supposed to. Right now, I think this is, this is a good picture of our lives in COVID right now. We're just sitting in the floor crying. But, you know, um, yeah, when, when you see their instructions, it's kind of like this. This is why we end up with chairs like that, because we have instructions like this. And I'm going to tell you, the little guy, I, love, I love the little guys they draw because they're not human at all. But I would totally be the guy on the right with the X, right? I would, you know, when I put stuff together, it's upside down. And then it makes me want to put this together for myself. Yeah, I thought that was just hilarious. <laughs> just wanted to remind you that I am Dr. Death. So there you go. It's, and then, and please forgive me, I'm going to get fired for this one. But I love the Simpsons and Ralphie is my spirit animal. And when I... When I feel, this is what I feel like at the end of the journey of Ikea, I glue my head to my shoulder. So looking at all of that, I just wanted that, uh, those pictures to show you how complicated things can be. Now, let's think theologically for a few minutes. After all, this is a sermon. Sin is complicated. Obedience is simple. Now, I want you to get that in your head because as we come to the end of David's life, we see both of those elements in play. We see the complicating factor that is our sins, but we also see some great wisdom as it relates to simplifying our lives and finding where we need to be. 
In a way, David's advice to Solomon on his deathbed is very, very simple. If we were going to boil it down to one word, which of course is every congregation's dream when they have a windy preacher like me, if we could bring it all down to one word, it would be obey. David is telling Solomon, obey. If you think about the fact that a man is on his deathbed and he's talking to his his son who's going to sort of take over uh, the kingdom or the family business, you know, you want to say the things that really matter. It just so happens this week I was reading uh, this book and it was dealing with the de Medici's, if you know anything about that family, the bankers there in Florence. And there was this guy, his name was Lorenzo the Magnificent. I mean, you talk about a name. Lorenzo the Magnificent, and he is the guy, if you ever get the chance to go to Florence, he is the the guy that was sort of the money behind a lot of the great artwork that we call Renaissance masterpieces. He was was a supporter of Michelangelo. He knew Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, this guy was the guy in Renaissance Italy. And he had this son, and uh, he, he was a little worried about his son. And, and you'll find out in history that he had reason to be worried because Piero, his name, his, his little title was Piero the Unfortunate. Now, how do you go from Lorenzo the Magnificent to Piero the Unfortunate? Well, you make a lot of bad life choices, okay? But this is what's interesting. Lorenzo says to Piero on his deathbed, here's his advice. He says, get up early. Well, I mean, with a guy with a name like Magnificent, you would think it would be a little better advice than that. But here's what I want you to grab a hold of. I I read that this week, and it just seemed to fit and dovetail so well with what we're talking about here. Because when we're down to our last few breaths in this life, when we're really trying to think of what it is that we need to leave behind as a legacy, we don't want to be complicated. We want to be as simple as possible. And though getting up early sounds like a minor deal, I'm going to tell you, when you get up early and get to work and get things done, you can accomplish a lot more in life. That's pretty good advice. But here we have even better advice because it's not about being productive. Listen, all of us can be productive in life. We can go out there and and do things that that impress. You can be the kind of person that when you walk down the street in New York or L.A., people know who you are. They recognize you. You can call that success. But listen, most of that success goes right with you into that coffin. What we want is we want success that lives beyond us. And the only way that we can have that kind of success is to be obedient unto God. These words are simple, but these words can help us simplify. David's life ends with a bit of a mess. I didn't read all the verses to you, but in verses uh, 5 and following, down to about verse 9, you'll see that, that David has a hit list, literally, of people that Solomon needs to take out. What a sad commentary on our lives. Here at the end of his life, David sounds more like Don Corleone than David, the writer of the Psalms. Sounds like the Godfather ordering hits instead of the David we know writing Psalms. And what a difference David and Jesus give us. Because Jesus, when he was on the cross, being nailed to that cross for our sins, instead of ordering hits from the cross, he says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
We need to always look to Jesus because the heart of the king, the heart of Jesus is always better than the heart of even the most famous of biblical characters, whether it's Moses, whether it's David, whether it's Peter or Paul. Those were men who made tragic mistakes in life. But when we look to Jesus, he is the author and finisher of our faith. And what we realize is he lived the perfect life and he gave us the words that we need to live by. The trick is, will we obey? That's the question this morning. Will you obey? God's word is beautiful and elegant. It's like an apple product. When you buy an apple product, it's a simple white box, has about three components in it, and you just hit the power button and off you go. God's word is simple like that. It is beautiful you, you, when you obey it, your life can be more simple and more beautiful as well. If we take the time to know the God of the Bible, our lives will become more beautiful. And so as we finish the life of David today, I think we'll see that there is a simpler way to live our lives, a more powerful and profound way. And it begins by finding strength in obedience. I want you to look there at verses 1 through 3. Those verses are really uh, a, recap, a recap of much of even Deuteronomy and even Joshua. You have a lot of the, the words there that you can tell flow from just the heart of God, not just from Moses or Joshua. Uh, you have the heart of God here. And ultimately, if I were to summarize these verses, David says to Solomon, man up. Now, I realize the conversation these days is rather negative as it relates to toxic masculinity and the patriarchy. So if you'll forgive me, I know I'm saying man up. It's very toxic, maybe, or maybe I'm uh, uh, leaning towards the patriarchy, but not at all. What I'm really saying is, is that, is that David, as a father, is saying to his son to be mature, to be grown up, to not act like a child, to do the right thing. And David realizes that Solomon is going to have to get real strong, real quick, if he is going to be an effective ruler of his people. In fact, one commentator says what we have here is the language of warriorship, not worship, the language of warriorship. Be strong, show yourself a man. Notice verse three, keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. Now listen to this, manliness, if we want to call it that, here in this text, sounds like a meek, church-going sort of person. And that's what the world needs today. We have plenty of people that are trying to be large and in charge. We don't have enough people who are humbling themselves before Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Even in the church, we have people who are proud, people who are confident in their own abilities, people who think that their ministry is a God-given gift and they want everybody to treat them as such. Listen, we need people who will serve the hurting. People who are serious about those who are disadvantaged and those who are down and out. We need people who are manly enough to be like Jesus and live for sacrifice, to live to give. But many of us are more focused on living to get. I know the language here doesn't sound much like a Viking warrior. Again, it just sounds like the guy who faithfully brings, the mom who faithfully brings the children to church week after week. Those are the real warriors in our world today. The real warriors are the ones who stand up for God's truth. 
the ones who are defending the poor and weak, the ones who will not be cowered by a cancel culture. Just last week, a lady who's a relatively well-known movie star was found that she was supporting a charity that was trying to get women off the street that offended people in Hollywood. And so she had to literally beg for forgiveness from her fans for daring to give to a charity that was trying to rescue women from the street and prostitution. She was so worried about losing, I don't know, a few fans on Facebook, maybe some some followers on TikTok. I don't know what it is, but she decided that she was going to bow to that pressure. That's the cancel culture I'm talking about. In church, I don't know what it is that makes you happy, but if having followers and making the world happy is what makes you happy, then you're going to be in for a very, very sad life. You need to be worried about obeying God and pleasing Him. And we need mighty warriors who are willing to stand against the culture and say, you can cancel me, you can kick me off your platform, but we are going to preach the Bible. We are going to point people to Jesus. We are unapologetically going to say that the Word of God is breathed from God to us and worth our lives. It's simple. Man, we make it complicated. Our word for today is challenging us to seek spiritual prosperity. That's something different. Many of the sermons you will listen to today sound more like they're trying to give you material prosperity. Is that the message of the carpenter from Nazareth? I don't think so. We are called to live lives that are saturated with biblical truth, informed. Your actions, your words, informed by biblical truth. When a leader actively seeks out God's will, whether it's a mother, a pastor, a mayor, a CEO, the people they serve and care for will experience peace. This is important. Good leadership. And let me remind you, not too long ago, we defined leadership as anyone who has influence. Good leadership simplifies our lives and gives us the ability to enjoy God fully. We need warriors on every level. Yeah, man up, but let me say this. We have a wonderful kindred moms group. About a year ago, I preached a sermon to them or gave a talk to them, um, and I told them to be warrior mamas, so they made this t-shirt up. And I want to tell you, uh, Kayla, I want you to know how much, how much pride I had in my heart to know that something I said inspired a t-shirt. I'm so happy. I have arrived. I don't know if you're involved in our kindred mom's ministry, but I hope you will be. Because you need to be around those women where iron is sharpening iron. That's not just a man thing. That needs to be a, a woman thing too. And you can become a warrior mama for God. If you are a single woman in this congregation or a single man, don't think that you get a free pass. You are called to be a warrior for God. It doesn't matter who you are. If you are a Christ follower, you are called to be obedient and you are called to be a warrior for God. And the warrior, the great warrior, understands the need to follow the commands of the captain, the general the leader. And for us, that is none other than Jesus. 
We do not need to equivocate about what our job, our role is. God has spoken and we must listen. But we live weak lives because we have weak faith. And we must lead our families by modeling active gospel obedience. Active gospel obedience. Active gospel obedience. All three of those words are imperative for us. Active. We're not passive. We are not just going to allow this beautiful faith that we have in Christ uh, remain stagnant in our hearts, but it needs to be active. Gospel. It means it's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not my philosophy, your philosophy, my thoughts, your thoughts. It is literally the word, the good word from God and obedience. Well, that means we listen and we do. We don't need radical people as the world defines it. Radical in terms of just pushing against authority and being uh, crude and rude. Let's be radical in a different way. Let's radically follow Jesus. When you take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, people notice. When you live like that, when you make Jesus the model, people notice. So you ask the question, how do we get there? Well, our second point helps us get in that direction. We worship the Lord with our heart and soul. Simple obedience gives us the opportunity to dig down deep into God's word and to take that word that is deep in us deeper into our community. We, are not, we don't want to be a glancing blow on our, on our community. We want to hit hard at the hearts of people. We want to take a deep word of faith and pour that deep word. I'm going to tell you, and this is just me shooting off the cuff here, uh, coming off the cuff here. I'm serious. Watered down preaching, watered down Bible study, watered down everything. I don't have any time for it. Church, you need to go deep in your faith in Jesus because this culture is in deep trouble and in need of a deep, deep gospel. Take this word, not my words, but this word into your heart, deep, deep, deep. And how does it get there? It gets into our heart and soul through worship. Worship is the vehicle that gets the gospel through the mind and into our hearts and souls. This is it. This moment that we share together is how we allow the Spirit to work in us, to reveal to us. It's not just about the words I'm speaking. It's about the Spirit that's moving. We come to worship corporately and we sing the songs that prepare our hearts. We read the scriptures that prepare our hearts. We pray and prepare our hearts and we hear the Word and the Word begins to sink deep inside of us. Worship is not just window dressing. I know that those who are watching at home, many of you are not able to come and, and I am not saying this in a negative way towards you at all. But what we need is togetherness. When COVID is over, please don't give up on this moment. Coming together in worship is not window dressing. It's not just numbers that we count and brag about, friends. This is at the center of what we do. It is in worship that we fall more in love with Jesus so that we can do more for Jesus. Our ministry in the world is only as good as our ministry of the Word. 
We need the word to minister to us. If you go out and try to do the work, the gospel work of the kingdom, and you don't have the word deep in your heart, you will be tempted to do good deeds. You will be striving for excellence in ethics. But listen, we need more than excellence in ethics. We need people filled with the Holy Spirit who, when they speak, as Johnny said earlier, the demons flee. Ah, you, you all are way too advanced for that kind of language, scientific, empirical. You've all been taught about a material world where everything has an equation. I pray God will mess up your equations. I pray that God will make you see that he is the creator of the equations. I'm here to tell you there is a life out there. There is a world out there. There is light and darkness. There is good and evil. No matter what you're being told in school, there is real evil out there. There are true demonic forces and they can be defeated by the power of Jesus. Preachers get up and say things about demons and stuff, Johnny. And I, know if you, I don't know if you feel this, but people are like, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. It's like fairy tale time at school, huh? Until the darkness shows up on your doorstep. Until you see real evil face to face. The early church didn't, didn't have all the, the smarts, didn't have all the degrees you guys have or are earning didn't have all the education. They were smart enough to see that there were forces in this world, good and evil. And they knew how much they needed Jesus. You can explain it all the way if you want to. But I'm going to tell you right now, you start going out there and trying to share your faith in Jesus, you'll see the darkness because it's coming for you. And one of the reasons why we rarely see darkness is because we're rarely in the light. If you haven't had any spiritual pushback, it means you're not pushing. Crickets. Because it's true. I don't say it's true because I know what's going on in your life. I know what's going on in my life. And when I'm most satisfied, most of the time, it's because I am not pushing. Church, it is time for us to push. You need to realize how desperate We have to be. David tells Solomon a little bit about political philosophy in verse 4. This is on my mind because I've been thinking a lot about it. As as, you know, I'm I'm, I'm a parent of college uh, college student, and many of you college students, I've had these conversations. We go to we go to school, we take a political science class, and we find out when we hear all their theories that basically they're bankrupt. They don't work. Every single system always has some kind of failure point. Why? Well, because human beings are in charge. I don't know if you know that, but as long as humans are in charge, every system is going to fail. The only way to achieve peace in our time is to get serious about worship. You want to get serious about changing the world? Listen, get serious about worship. Politicians have promised peace in our time. That's a direct quote of Neville Chamberlain. He said those words as he got off an airplane, having just had a lovely chat with a fellow named Adolf Hitler. And within just a matter of months, the world was at war. Political solutions seem good. The world today is, I don't know if you've noticed, but they're really, you know, 
really into this election thing still. I, I talk about it some. Why are people so wrapped, wrapped up into this? Well, it's because they're hoping that that's the solution. Now, listen, I, I'm not telling you not to vote. I'm not telling you not to be involved. I'm a, I'm a big believer in the process. I believe we need to be a part of the process. But call me crazy. What the world needs, what it exactly needs, is not another political philosophy, but a people of God acting like the power of God is real. The world needs us on fire for Jesus. Quit trying to fix the world at the ballot box and begin the journey of healing in the altar of God. Vote, yes, but don't think that that's the ultimate answer. Too many people are acting like, even Christians are acting like, that's the ultimate answer. It is not. It is penultimate. It's important, but it's not ultimate. What is ultimate is you being on fire for Jesus. Spend more time in, your, in the Word and less time watching the news. Pour your heart into the Word of God because it will pour back into you. The gospel of the kingdom is the solution our world needs. We need to walk with God if we truly want to grow more godly. David, as he gives these final words to Solomon, was light on political science. He was pretty heavy on theology. The reason why is because worship is the gateway to obedience. The wisest among us will worship. Let me just mention this to you. Before COVID, a few uh, Christian, uh, I don't know, like Barna, groups like that that do all this research, researchers, they said that the average churchgoer, the average church member, let me put it to you that way, it's the average church member goes to church 1.6 times a month. Now, we're not talking about people that are unchurched. We're not talking about people who are seekers. We're talking about people who are baptized members of churches, and they find it in in their schedule about 1.6 times a month to get to church. So the clever among you are saying, what's with the .6? Well, I've got it. The point six is anybody in here right now that's asleep while I'm preaching. You get point six credit, but not full credit. So wake up. All right. Anyway, one point six. Now, why do I mention that? Because worshiping the Lord with your heart and soul when it's one to two times a month, and that's when we're coming to church, and that's when we're engaging in worship. How can we expect to change the world when we are being obedient in worship only 25 percent of the time. How can we be obedient to God when the word says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together? For it is the practice of some, Hebrews chapter 10. Let me tell you, it's the practice of most in the modern world. 2,000 years ago, it was the practice of some, but it has become the practice of most. We might be able to say, amen, when the preacher says, be obedient. And then we have to say, oh me, when we see how little we are obedient. I'm not saying this to, to, to be mean-spirited. I, I don't mean it at all that way. But I think we all, all have to admit we have a problem. And COVID is going to make it not better, but worse. You know, when you spend eight months out of a habit, it's going to take some time to get back in a habit. 
Other researchers like Barna are saying that, that most churches are going to be at least 20 to 25% less than pre-COVID numbers because of just the habit factor. Not the hobbit factor, if you're Tolkien, the habit factor. I don't know why I said that other than I watched some Lord of the Rings last night. But anyway, what's your habit? Many of us are out of the habit. Folks who are at home right now, many of those people who are are hurting and, and just eager to get back into church, I don't think this is for you. But those of you who have grown comfortable not coming to church, I hope you're listening. Because you can't be obedient to God apart from his people. So, obey sounds easy. How do we get there? Well, we worship. Let's take a look at one more point. A warning. Beware of sin's loose ends. What a sad commentary. We've already touched on it, so I'll be quick here. But the messy nature of David's life doesn't end here on his deathbed. In fact, it gets worse. Why? Because David wants to get even more than he wants to just stay right with God. These verses are saturated with the politics I was talking about a moment ago. And David doesn't do his son any favors by having him, having him clean up his own unfinished business. I mean, as a father, I want to give my kids the very best step forward I can. And I know how, how much our minds can be altered and impacted by negative events. So imagine telling a young man about to take the throne... I need you to kill some people for me. What is that going to do to his soul? David is ordering hits from his deathbed, things he should have taken care of himself. A reminder of how messy sin makes life. Had these men sinned, were they due for judgment? I would say yes. I, when I read the texts that, that do involve Joab and Shammai, these are men who probably did deserve death by the standards of the day. Now, not our legal system, not what we would say our standards are for the day. But remember, we can't read back the rules into their culture and say, what we think is right is right. They had rules. These rules were broken. These men deserve to die. That's not the issue. The issue is, is that David doesn't take care of it himself. So dads, this is an aside, but don't leave unfinished business for your children. Take care of the things you need to take care of. Be godly in how you deal with them. I'm not telling you to go kill somebody. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Don't take this analogy too far. Get done what needs to get done. Be a man. Be a woman. Do what you're supposed to do. And don't expect your kids to clean up the mess for you. I'm going to tell you, I've knew a lot over the years. I've known a lot of kids that, that had to lead their parents to Christ because their parents were far from the Lord. I'm, I'm thankful for that. But that's not the way it should be. Friends, look at this. The politics of this passage. Our political solutions always lead to pain. Gospel solutions and only gospel solutions lead to peace and healing. In the middle of this hit list, there is some love, hard to believe, but there's this guy by the name of Brasilia who was a good neighbor to David in a time of great need. And so David says, hey, take care of him. But then we have the hits that he orders. Think of this. The more you give in to sin, the more sin you pour into the world. You are a vessel. Do you hear me? Your life is a vessel pouring good or evil into the world. When sin dominates your heart, what you're pouring into the world is the poison of sin. And church, 
if it can happen to David, it can happen to us. If we are not constantly, continually, not just in the altar, but in our homes, constantly and continually bowing before Lord, the Lord asking for forgiveness, being obedient to his word, if we are not constantly asking for a heart check, we will be pouring more sin into the world. And when our sin is not covered by the blood of Jesus, our sin covers us with shame. Anybody that tells you that the New Testament is about love and the Old Testament is about judgment, I would have you memorize Matthew 13, verses 40 through 43. Let's hear the words of our Savior and Lord. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus was the most powerful of the Old Testament prophets, if you want to put it in that light. Here he says that those who do not receive the forgiveness of their sins will be gathered and will be burned. The fiery furnace image, I don't think, is just a metaphor. It is the reality of hell. If we do not find forgiveness for our sins, our sins will kill us. Sin multiplies when we unleash it in the world. But when we live lives of simple obedience, when we walk in his ways and keep his statutes, as David says in chapter 2, verse 3 of 2 Kings, walk in his ways and keep his statutes. Then as Jesus' words remind us, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. You are either going to reflect the darkness, and I know in terms of physics that doesn't work, but you're going to reflect the darkness or you're going to reflect the light. Be a light bearer in this culture today. This morning as I was preparing, I, I always in my morning Bible study, I have a couple books that I'll read a chapter or two of just to try to center my heart for the day. I ran across this quote from Legan Duncan, who is a, he's a great preacher. His, he's got this voice, this deep voice, this Adrian Rogers type voice, those Baptists in the room who know, remember Adrian Rogers, he has that kind of voice. Only, only problem with him is he's a Presbyterian. No, I'm just kidding. They're wonderful people. He says this, there is a God, little g, we want, and the God who is. The two are not the same. Let me just be honest with you. Myself and most of us, we come to church every Sunday hoping that we learn more about the God that we want. The reason we come here is because the only thing that can shake us from that is the God who is. He is. Moses says, who do I tell my people you are? I am that I am. The God that just is. When I say simple obedience... I'm not asking you to bow down before some worldly idol. I'm not telling you to follow my system. When I speak of obedience, I'm telling you we need radical commitment to the Word of God. 
How can you know and how can you live in such a way that you reflect the heart of the king? Obey. He or she who has ears to hear, let them hear. And if God is speaking to you this morning, may you come. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.